Hello and welcome to the Ethics in Action podcast. I am your guest host, Alex Stubbs, a philosopher and postdoctoral fellow at the Applied Ethics Center at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. This podcast is part of a mini-series on the future of work, guest hosted by myself and James Hughes, Executive Director of the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies, and a bioethicist and sociologist who serves as the Associate Provost for Institutional Research, Assessment, and Planning for the University of Massachusetts, Boston. In this series, we'll dive deep into some of the most pressing topics of our time regarding work, the influence of automation on the future of work, the appeal and purpose of work, its connection to meaningful living, the harms of the work ethic, and the idea of a shortened work week. We'll also tackle the issue of alienation in the workplace and discuss innovative policy proposals that could help us navigate the ever-changing landscape of 21st century work. We're happy to have you join us on the Ethics in Action podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Ethics in Action podcast. I am your guest host, Alex Stubbs, continuing our series on the questions of work. I'm happy to be joined here today by Dr. Brian O'Connor. Brian O'Connor is a professor of philosophy at University College Dublin and author of the 2018 book, Idleness, our main topic of discussion for today. So, Brian, thanks for joining us here on the podcast. My very great pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So... I want to just start out by talking about your motivations for writing a book on on idleness um, and pre-pandemic, <laughs> no less. So, why would why were you interested in taking up this question to begin with? It really became something I hadn't expected at the beginning. Um, my interests, my bread and butter interests in philosophy, are the history of philosophy, social philosophy in particular, and I, I just plugging away on my usual material with Kant and Hegel and all of those characters. And I noticed a passage in one of Kant's books where he condemned idleness as a kind of practice unworthy of rational beings like us. And I was slightly troubled by it, but not that troubled by it. But second time I came across it, I thought, I have to think about this a bit more deeply. And before I knew it, there was a sort of a, a seam of disgust and idleness among philosophers from that period. And I just decided to craft a little book around that. My thought was that it would be just as a rather oblique view of German philosophy from that period, but it grew into a wider set of reflections about what idleness is, what it might be for us, and uh, to tackle the arguments I found in those philosophies against it. Great. So I, I want to start off by just sort of defining some terms here, right? So thinking about some of the typical ways that we understand things like work and leisure and idleness. So how do you see all of these as different from one another, related to one another? And in particular for you, what makes idleness something different than just our sort of traditional conception of leisure? Yeah, I mean, there are obviously are difficulties when it comes to concepts like this in drawing demarcation lines between them. It, it is a bit stipulative because in everyday language, these boundaries don't exist. In people's minds, these boundaries don't clearly exist. So anything I say here, I say in full sort of confession of being stipulative. Um, but I don't hope, I don't think dogmatic because I'd be very happy to have you argue back against me. But I think of leisure uh, as something that, as I say somewhere in the book, has been incorporated into the world of work. Now, I know it didn't always have that positionality, but in our modern world, leisure is an extremely important part of the work regime. Uh, workers themselves know when they feel depleted, when the batteries are a bit flat, and a period of leisure, vacation, whatever it is, just vegging out, is essential to restore them to good performance and so on. And actually we see this backed up uh, in, in most organized societies with an obligation to take, um, to take leave. It's not just a humane, it's not a humane concern primarily, or, or, 
well, that's perhaps debatable, with, with, whether it's primary or secondary, but it's not exclusively connected with the welfare of the individual. The welfare of the employer is also in mind because no employer wants exhausted, depleted workers. So, so companies have the you know basically have the authority, have the right to send people away for some time to restore them. So, I think of leisure as perhaps it feels like idleness whilst it's happening, you know, in in that sense. If people really just veg out, do nothing, uh, then it may look very much like idleness. But if it's part of a regime of the labour world, uh, then it's then it obviously has a different different significance. Of course, for many people, leisure isn't in any case just a matter of doing nothing uh, at all. And a lot of people are ex exceedingly active with the time that they have away from organized work. Uh, there are there are good analyses of the parallels between the ways in which people spend their time in leisure time and free time and the way they might spend it in organized work. So it, what, what I'm trying to, to suggest with those kind of descriptions is that leisure can actually seem like something that isn't really free in the way I think of idleness as being free. And then maybe I should say something about idleness. Then it really, it, it is portrayed in the book as something I, I as a certainly idealized as something that is disconnected from productivity that isn't just a rest from productivity in the name of eventual superior performance, but something that really uh, turns its back on all kinds of labor, from labor in the in the conventional sense of 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 of, of setting your energies to work on a on a paid task, to even labor on your own self, which is uh, a, a philosophical uh, challenge. Uh, to some of the philosophers I mentioned at the beginning, the idea that you might be indifferent to yourself, to say idle with regard to your own future self, with your own self-constitution and so on. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it seems like the the concept of idleness that you want to work with is something like um, a kind of intrinsic valuation of... Um, uh, oneself or the moment or something like that. Maybe I'm putting too much on this, but at least it isn't uh, it isn't something that is instrumentalized. Whereas something like leisure and work both have aims or potentially have aims other than the thing that we do for the sake of itself. Even if that sort of instrumental quality is not just uh, productive in an economic sense, but productive in say so something like a self cultivation sense. Yes, exactly. And and that, that's exactly right. And what, what that can lead to, or what can lie at the back of the the productive kind of imperative, is is a kind of a an unstated worry. Well, sometimes it is stated, but the worry about waste, about wasting your life, wasting your time. Uh, and I I don't want to deride these notions, by the way. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm as aware as any any other human being that's managed to cope with life of of the value of using one's time in certain ways. But it's to draw out the presuppositions uh, that lie behind these kinds of imperatives to self and to others, not to waste your life, not to waste your time. And it seems like an awful thing to to. Uh, say of anyone their life was wasted or or for somebody to go into a spiral of despair thinking I'm wasting my life or I let all this time pass when I should have been you know doing whatever it is they might see as more valuable and it's it's just a curious thing to think of life as something that has a use value that can be you know maximized almost almost maxed out if you've done it really well uh, uh and on the contrary, to be underused in a way that's completely um, traumatizing if people think about it. It's, you know, it's like people see, I mean, all, any you could think of any kind of metaphor here, but the self as a garden or something like that, a beautiful garden mm -hmm. that should be planted out, that should be yielding crops or, or generating beauty and the, the, the kind of moral negligence of not using it that way. Yeah. 
as a troubling kind of reaction. Yeah, yeah I was so I just taught um, Pyrus and Cineus by Simone de Beauvoir uh, in one of my courses on the meaning of life. And she takes up the the Candide, uh, uh, the, the ending of Candide, where what one must do is cultivate their garden. And that's exactly it. I mean, there is a kind of action orientation to how we view ourselves, that it's this endless process of cultivation. And that sort of taking a rest from that kind of cultivation of one, of one's garden is is somehow being negligent. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and, and you even mentioned, you know, the idea of, of wastefulness, um, which I think is actually really interesting too, the idea that one can waste one's life. But this then gets us into this, the, the problem of having to understand not wasting one's life from the perspective of of work and and not seeing potentially the work that we're doing as itself a form of wastefulness yeah 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 so yeah. in your book you you take up the idea of what you call the worthiness myth right and how it relates to work and rationality and self cultivation so could you describe a little bit how you conceptualize this worthiness myth and how you think it's contributed to this stigmatization of idleness yeah so, uh, so it it's it, it certainly occurred to me most prominently, but then I found it echoed beyond him when I looked at Kant's work, because there is a lot of, it's not a, it's not a foregrounded theme, but it's there in, in a few statements in Kant's work that we make ourselves worthy of our rational being by making ourselves useful. And, you know, I think I th- I'm always surprised, uh, well, at least since I made that an issue for myself, that Kant scholars aren't quite interested in this problem themselves because Kant seems to diverge from what he's more famous for in his moral philosophy, which is to talk about just the pure rationality of an action uh, for rationality's sake, uh, and instead talks about usefulness. And he couches his talk about usefulness in, in terms of worthiness. So to make oneself worthy of one's own humanity. And let's face it once you once you have a kind of uh, a foundation like that you can build any anything you want you can you can attach any fantasy of what a human being really should be to that uh, to, to that kind of foundation and in the case of Kant and, and many of these what I would like to say enlightenment philosophers there's a view that making a contribution to society through your work is the way in which you make yourself worthy and that reverberates you know for centuries i think after those philosophers uh the idea that there's a there's a a contribution to the needs of others that is um inscribed in ourselves and this is best served through work they don't identify you know direct action you know charitable works you know making sure your neighbor's okay volunteering and so on any any kind of skilled work is that sort of contribution and has to be encouraged right Mm -hmm. and you know this this makes me think of the very modern notion of a career as a calling Mm -hmm. right so the idea that what someone does must be a kind of passion must be central to their purpose in life and so it doesn't even seem like we're just tying something like worthiness or utility to this. There's also something like meaning associated with uh, mm. a kind of worthiness myth that meaning is intimately tied to our understanding of uh, the relationship between our work and a kind of calling and self-cultivation. Yes, I think you're right. And and I, as I'm sure you, you know, and probably appreciate better than I do, this is, this is the great contribution of Max Weber and his book on the Protestant work ethic and so in some sense the idea of uh, of an occupation is to be seen almost like a, a a divine calling because it is the way in which we express our our good deeds on this earth and you know perhaps it perhaps again there are there's a legacy uh, I, I, I I've never quite had the sort of intuitions that that make Weber's work so uh, 
celebrated and discussed, but perhaps there there are among people a sense that any kind of disciplined career has the structure of a kind of, as you say, a, a calling, uh, and it because it involves you, as it were, trying to bring out the best in yourself in some sense that's not entirely reducible to self interest at least from a, from a distance that's might that might be how it it's seen uh, and you know i i suppose it's very difficult to you know to sort of continue the conversation sometimes at too general a level because we know of course mm -hmm. that there are very different kinds of forms of work and some uh, may feel much more like a calling rather than a, a drudge or a toil or you know a horrid necessity Certainly. And I, I think one of the one of the most fascinating things about contemporary capitalism is the ways in which the sort of career as calling has been incorporated into a kind of managerial uh, requirement. Right. So there may very well be a kind of, you know, kinds of work that are uh, genuinely meaningful that allow others to um to find a kind of purpose and significance and coherence in their lives. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a really interesting question about what kind of work is actually that and how much of work is sort of forced to fit that mold or how much are we kind of coerced into accepting that as a particular part of, of what work should be. And therefore, if work is not that for you, that you've somehow committed a kind of moral failure or something like mm. that. Mm. Yeah. And then, you know, to add to that, it, on, on the surface that a lot of people listening might think, well, that doesn't really sound like something I could easily disagree with, that that work is that, and that's the role it plays for me. But if we go into the nitty gritty of an actual life of work, and ask people, why is it so important to them that they gain recognition through work, that they gain promotion, that that they gain sort of bonuses and uh, and and rewards that that somehow contribute to their their sense of self and not just to their you know, to their financial well being. Those questions, I think, then become much more difficult. Why does it matter that one has done well in one's career? Because after all, those are measures that are simply set by the the arbitrary conditions of the career itself what 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 counts as good performance what counts as success and 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 eminence and so on in that in that field and i think those are the the it's when it comes to that that i think uh, some of the high high-minded claims about work begin to uh, struggle i think because it it, it in a, in, again, in the more general discussion, it sounds okay to say, you know, I gain, a, I, I get satisfaction in my work or, you know, working is good for my mental and physical capacities or, or something like that. And then we raise, raise the level and say, well, okay, but why is it a source of esteem? And why is there competitive pressure within work that so many of us take seriously? Yeah, and it assumes that that kind of recognition and that kind of social esteem uh, in many ways can only be made available through work, that mm. that can't be made available in our engagements in our community, as you said earlier, in our volunteer work, in our, um, you know, in, in sport, in different forms of play. There mm. are these alternative uh alternative activities that exist outside of our working lives that give us access to all of these things that we recognize as essential to um, esteem and recognition and community and so on and so forth yes i agree with i agree with that and or or you know the the the, so the, the, the pleasant ways in which friends can spend time together doing nothing much but somehow just enjoying each other's conversation and uh, you know eccentric perspectives on the world has nothing to do with rank or promotion or uh, any of those kinds of markers that are are the, the structure of of so many uh, professions, trades, forms of work. So one of the main threads that you talk about, and this is, 
I think really fascinating to pull apart. You talk about the relationship between Bildung or the idea of self-formation or self-cultivation and social use usefulness, mm. um, you know, what we can contribute to society at large. And you talk about how there's actually, there's a tension between these two things that seems to emerge that on the one hand, uh, work should give us a sense of self-cultivation, but on the other hand, you need to make yourself useful and there can be a kind of tension between those two things. So how do you think about the, the tension between those? Yeah, it, 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 it is a difficult one, not least because I guess the concept of Bildung itself took many forms in, in, the, in its heyday in, in, in high German culture. But in, in, in perhaps its most well-articulated form, we think of Bildung as this deep sense of cultivation that really draws out, it, you know, it's a humanism, it draws out, it draws out the best in us through our engagement with culture but it's it's laborious there's no doubt about that M virtually every promoter of building is an enemy of the commercial state so they sound like friends in some senses of, of, of idleness but of course they they can't be because they they sort of shift the obsession with work away from the workplace and wider society and the I say the commercial structures within which work takes place, and and shifted to ourselves, uh, and so they make they make the self a, a site of of work. I suppose you could say, uh, e even if it's one that, in its own sense, is quite critical of um, of, of 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 the the world that the the, uh, the idler also dislikes. But it, they're very far from friends of of idleness in that respect. I. I, I didn't really say anything about Nietzsche on that in the book, but it's clear he will be an example of this, you know, a, a, a complete Bildung uh, uh, promoter of, of the aestheticization of the self. And it's, it's arduous. It, it's, it's, it's humorless, even. It, it's, it's free of irony. It's a, it's a real project. Uh, it has nothing but contempt for the modern world, uh, the capitalist world. Hardly, it hardly makes uh, an appearance in his work. It's so beneath his his gaze. But he's no friend of idleness or laziness. It, for him, there is some project inscribed in us that is brought about through self cultivation uh, towards culture. You know, I, I this makes me think of um, this. This seems like a stretch, but bear with me here. This makes me think of um, the way that social media and the idea of profilicity has, in some ways, is sort of the the curation and cultivation of a profile has, in some ways, um, built together this idea of the aestheticization of a person with the idea of social usefulness. Mm -hmm. So every every act and every step, every aspect of your life is potentially a resume builder. And insofar as we are asked to display ourselves, put ourselves on display online and in various ways in the world, that's one in the same, uh, at the same time, a sort of resume builder. There's a, there, there's a sort of um, there's no distinction between the sort of self-cultivation of who I am as an individual and who I am at work. Those those things seem to be continuing to uh, to integrate with each other. I don't know if you have any thoughts on this. I'm not great on on social media, but I think I know what you mean about this sort of super performativity that goes on with the profile creation and the the story what one wants to tell about oneself, um, the the endless posting of of images and observations that give rise to a sense of a person who's tremendously interesting, uh, and I suppose again I I probably talking uh, complete rubbish here given I'm not so good on on social media, but I I get the impression that people like to create the illusion that this is all a very casual thing, you know, that they're just casually <laughs> finding themselves with interesting thoughts and in uh, alluring situations. But of course, it's massively curated uh, towards an end. And, and of course, the, the people can create 
uh, a kind of a, a charismatic um, uh, uh, version of themselves uh, through through this. But yeah, you are right. It's certainly it's certainly no version of sitting quietly in your in your in your room, a la Pascal. It's it's a it's an it's an engagement with yourself and to see yourself as I don't know if we, if we you know if, if, let, well let me just carelessly use the word but word but to use oneself as a commodity in that in that mm-hmm. respect because I understand too that although many people don't there are many who who can can make some sort of uh, you know financial success of this peculiar uh, what was that nice word you use profilation yeah profilicity. Profilicity, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, and and I think in particular, there's a kind of tendency to display oneself as being extraordinarily busy. Yeah. Right. And and I think, you know, in some ways that's particular to the United States. There have been very interesting social psychological studies on um, different views of social status based on this idea of profilicity. And then in the United States in particular, people tend to to see people who are busier as having a higher social status, whereas elsewhere around the world, that's not necessarily the case. The idea of living a more leisurely life elsewhere is viewed as uh, consistent with higher social status. Mm-hmm. And so I think that too, that sort of obsession with displaying one's busyness and that being associated with a kind of social status, that too is a rejection of, I think, what you're saying here in terms of idleness. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's yeah, that's very interesting. I, I I remember as a much younger person hearing for the first time uh, the phrase from, which seemed to come from America about work hard, play hard, uh, and and it was, right. it was it was I actually found it very hard to understand for a long time. Um, uh, I didn't really know how you could play hard. It, it, I clearly understand it now, but my my uh, my sense was that there 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 has to be surely some sort of rest there has to be a cessation of the the hard bit somewhere along the line but i know that's it was very much a, a phenomenon of the 80s yuppies onwards where they were in, you know if they were wealthy enough they could undertake all kinds of spectacular sporting activities that looked like they were pushing themselves uh to the edge at all times and then back in the office doing exactly the same thing with whatever their business was and yeah it was it was it was it was astonishing and i perhaps it is perhaps it is american and i don't know why that is you know for for better or for worse perhaps there's still the resonance of a certain kind of aristocratic leisure uh that that uh you know for obvious reasons didn't make it across the atlantic uh back back in the 19th century uh perhaps there there are there's there are still remnants of those traditional societies in parts of europe where they simply learned how to sit around when there was nothing to do. You know, when there are times of the year when there's nothing really to do uh, agriculturally, you just have to sit sit and wait. Uh, and obviously, America has a completely different experience uh, in many ways to, to to those two very differing classes of people. Right. Yeah. The there is no saying work hard, idle hard. In a lot of ways, <laughs> that wouldn't make sense, right? <laughs> but yeah. but that that uh that sort of pithy slogan work hard play hard that is i think consistent with this idea of a sort of incessant busyness yeah uh, and it leads to a, a a sense of burnout right because there is no time for that that sort of idle um more passive uh just sort of presence in the world. One always has to be engaging in some kind of self-cultivation, whether that is through work or through some sort of activity outside of work. Mm-hmm. You are a you are a process. You are something that ought to be continuously cultivated. Yeah, that's right. And and go- going with that, of course, there is you know the, we, we talk about self constitution, self cultivation, uh, the self as process, but we can't detach it from. The visibility thing again to go uh, to back to your uh, profilicity idea. It's about being seen as well, and that's there's this obviously a, a, a constant search for approval and affirmation through that, and it it'll, it'll never really come. And if those who get into that world are never going to get as as much as they want it, 
and presumably this is this is part of the destructive cycle uh, a constant need to fuel these this affirmation that makes people i say vulnerable to to burnout i mean a, a more a, a poignant incident a poignant episode in the history of ireland where i live what uh, was during the financial crash uh, at the end of the you know the first decade of this of this millennium uh, it, it hit Ireland pretty hard it, it it had risen very very rapidly as a as an economically successful and wealthy country and people were enjoying uh, luxuries that they simply could never have imagined in their in their in their youths you know and and portfolios of property that really they were unimaginable and i don't want to say in any pejorative sense that they were there was a massive amount of social competition because i'm not quite sure what really drove people but when when the tide went out and it went out very very quickly and people were left in debt losing businesses losing holdings losing prestige dwellings there was an ex ex exceptionally high rate of suicide uh, that we, we haven't seen since and hadn't seen before. And, you know, it's pretty easy to connect that with the way in which they had invested themselves in the visibility of what they had gained through this kind of uh, economic model of success. Uh, and and what's 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 so very very poignant about it is to think that they thought there was no way out that they didn't see as the alternative as some opportunity to reflect on whether it was worth it whether it was the best way to spend their time and their energies and whether a different kind of life might not present itself in the midst of this no doubt very traumatizing era of bankruptcy and and all the rest of it but that in in the future a different kind of life might be possible. It's it's right. quite clear that that this just wasn't envisaged by people who were caught up in that sort right. of situation. And and in a lot of ways, that example it it is a very poignant example because it highlights the ways in which both our economic structures and the resulting culture cause us to identify the that kind of collapse with a, a sense of moral failure. Mm. So rather than this being some sort of systemic failure, because we have sort of integrated this into a, a sort of a deep personal sense of not only uh, cultivation of ourselves through work, but then also um, through conspicuous consumption, mm. then that becomes something that we identify with. And as such is seen as a moral failure on the part of the individual rather than a systemic failure. Yes, exactly. That that's that's absolutely right. And again, I guess that's the loneliness of the person who feels they've failed. They're going to see it as as we do when we engage in the moralistic stance uh, as mm. a purely individual matter, as a, a matter of their own poor decisions for which they must bear completely uh, irrevocable consequences mm. so i want to turn to hegel and marx um you dedicate an entire chapter of your book to to hegel and marx and in particular the importance that both hegel and marx uh marx building from hegel place on humanity's interdependence and rejection of idleness as a, kind of a form of asociality right so um, in some ways, it's a little bit different from the sort of Kantian perspective. Mm. Um, can you spell out how idleness is characterized for Hegel and how that that changes in Marx? Yeah, uh, in in Hegel, it, it, this this thought about work, his thoughts about work occur in his great work, The Philosophy of Right, and there he develops this concept called the system of needs, which could be a fairly neutral concept about how in any organized community human beings within it have needs that need to be serviced somehow and the, the community in some sense finds ways of doing that through industry and distribution and all the rest of it hegel moralizes that though if that's the right word he because he thinks of the 
the system of needs as an ethical system. And so this, this gives work a whole new significance because anyone who might promote idleness in some sense is promoting something that's departing from the, the ethical. And Hegel wants to know on what grounds they think they can do that. And he has uh, as his favorite enemy, the case of uh, Diogenes, who it, for, as far as he was concerned was a performative idler, essentially, who, who was in a sense undertaking at the almost the absurdity of attempting to sort of jump out of his own skin and pretend to be mm -hmm. something else. But once we undertake a certain kind of social formation, uh, all of this talk about idleness and the non-necessity of work is a fantasy. So Hegel really takes socialization really, really seriously. Um, that, that to the degree that you know, an adult claim or a philosophically developed claim for idleness becomes a, a nonsense for him because we're already too far into the game to be able to make any sense of that for ourselves. We can't reverse uh, our formation, our practical formation and our position within the, uh, uh, the system of needs. But you know, to, to to borrow a phrase of Marx from a different context, it's like he sprinkles work with a sort of holy water and turns mm -hmm. it into something, you know, that is it, it has has ethical potential. It seems like an extremely antiquated idea, but so, some of your listeners will be aware of recent efforts to kind of uh, reinvigorate Hegel's theory in, in the work of Axel Honneton some of his followers using very similar language and their project then has to be to rescue work is it's not a matter of just doing any old work at least if we think of work as part of the system of needs then we should try to make work something that's consistent with with somehow human capacities and human freedom but so so th this was this was hegel's thing anyway is that our our deep socialization means that idleness is just a kind of it's it's a philosophical nonsense and in any case if you want to see a real person who never had the advantages of socialization look at the barbarian the barbarian is exactly the opposite of what any of us really wants to be because the barbarian is unskilled isolated probably mute and completely uninteresting so there are there aren't many models for us as far as Hegel's concerned you are the contrivance of a diogenes pretending to be an idler he's and it can only be a pretense given he, he's a properly socialized person in the first place or the true idler the person who was never socialized the the kind of the 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 the, the dirty lazy barbarian so that that's that's the sort of story of Hegel as I found it. When it comes to Marx, it's it's maybe just important for me to say to your listeners that we're really only dealing with sort of the early Marx here. Um, and um, I might have had a few inconsequential remarks on some of the later stuff in 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 what I said about Marx, but it's it's effectively the Paris stuff and then and and some of the early material from the uh, you know the German ideology and so forth, and I think we know that Marx was influenced by the idea that that work could be a positive source of self-realization, but hoped it would be thought it could only be so in a properly humane uh, society, and the arguments are attractive. Maybe they're utopian, but that doesn't make them any less worthy of, our, of, of of challenging us. I think the difficulty I just found with Marx was the limits of his of his imagination in that maybe just revert to something I said a little earlier in our discussion. He couldn't really imagine any form of social satisfaction that might come from uh, friendship, you know, from from the kind of the privacy of family life or 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 so on it was it was the 
importance of contributing to to work in a certain way uh, that um, would be positively induced by a sense of commitment to the community, but in line with one's talents. And my, so my question about Marx was always about the scope of his of his imagination and his fixation on work. Mm. Yeah, and there's there's this long-standing debate, as I'm sure you're aware of, whether or not Marx really allows for something like more of a post-work future where mm -hmm. we could imagine a significant reduction of work and whether or not we can engage in a kind of self-realization in a world beyond work. Um, because as you point to, you know, you're, you're working primarily with the early Marx, right? And so for the listeners, you know, uh, the manuscripts and comments on James Mill mm -hmm. um, in particular, we get a lot of the the humanist Marx, right? The Marx mm -hmm. that is uh, not only sees the self being developed through through labor, labor, but also um, uh, the sort of highly social Marx that recognizes that through the meeting of others' needs, we also find our our species being. Um, but then there's this really interesting part in Capital Volume Three, the sort of famous line of. Um, um, the idea of the true realm of freedom um, existing uh, beyond the realm of necessity, where he sort of says the the reduction of the working day is the basic prerequisite. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, thousands of pages, if not more of ink have been spilled about what exactly that means and what that looks like. And it seems like there he's trying to say something along the lines of, beyond the realm of necessity, beyond the realm of needing to work in order to meet our basic needs, that's where real freedom lies. Mm -hmm. But we don't get a lot more than that, right? We don't get a sort of peek behind the curtain about what that could potentially look like. Now, perhaps it still is something along the lines of a kind of building self-cultivation or something like that, in which case it isn't consistent with uh, idleness, perhaps. Yeah. Um, there's also the comment in the in the Grundrisse as well, where he even thinks, as some later futurists thought, that perhaps mechanization would be so prevalent that it would relieve us of of the heavy burden. And as you say, he, you know, as is typical of the later Marx, he's not going to spell out what that's what that will look like. And at that point, he's no longer making any kind of anthropological speculations because which which in a way is what 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 intrigues us isn't it well what what will human beings look like in that way what will the daily life look like yeah and it, and it, it, it is there's no doubt he goes much further than many uh of the radicals of the time including i think uh, was was paul lafargue his um his son-in-law who had yes, this yes. yeah who had this idea uh, who, who, who? Well, I should say, is, uh, who's maybe uh, who voices a, a certain kind of radicality, which says, "Look at all these socialists. All they want to do is to perpetuate work, but under the name of their own ownership of the means of production." And I, what I, I think I, I always like that essay because it's all about how far the our radical imagination can go, you know, and it's it it you can easily see why workers think things will be better if they own the means of production themselves. Whereas the more radical step is to think about well, what is it that we want to own, and what are the consequences of the of the of the model? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And further, what is the what is the aim that we're trying to reach? I mean, yeah. in a lot of ways, this leads to to your discussion of Schopenhauer and boredom, because if our if the goal is the ownership of the means of production for the sake of being able to engage in a kind of self-realization and self-ownership, um, but production is still for the sake of meeting basic needs, at what point do we recognize the purpose of human life as being beyond sort of the fulfillment of needs. Mm -hmm. And um, we get into this sort of Schopenhauerian cycle of continual desire, you know, sort of what mm -hmm. is the end game that we're trying to reach here? So yeah. 
I want you to talk a little bit about Schopenhauer and boredom and how boredom and yeah. desire relate to idleness. I think in many ways, Schopenhauer is voice is probably the most powerful argument, or I say socially influential argument against idleness and for work. I mean, when, you know, we look at the Kant and we're talking about some of the technicalities of his own commitments. Um, uh, maybe Hegel's ideas come closer to a certain kind of sense of the, of the, the depth of socialization. And people will say, well, that's all very interesting, but we can disagree uh, on, on the interpretation or the implications of what's being said there. But many people feel that there's a completely irrefutable fact of life and that maybe Schopenhauer articulates it better than anyone ever, is that we get bored very easily if we're not working. So you can be a, you can be a socialist, a communist, or, or, or an old-style uh, work ethic uh, ideologue. No matter what, you, you have to agree that we get bored unless we work. And that, that is an, an irremovable obstacle in the way of those who say we want... We, we would thrive with more leisure or we would be liberated with with idleness. And I, I thought that Schopenhauer was very important to tackle for that reason, because in many ways that anyone I tackle in the book is, is not really tackled for their own sake, but because I see them as articulating views that in one way or another have leaked outside pure philosophy and uh, into uh, broader social worries about idleness and the worry about boredom is a, is a, is a, is a big one and it is Schopenhauer's view that the structure of the mind the structure of the human mind or human personality perhaps is such that when not working when not in, or not engaged in a busy activity uh, it makes itself miserable through boredom because the, the same swirling mechanism uh, which he calls willing, uh, it goes on. Uh, and so restlessness will inevitably follow. So the, you don't get restless when this swirling mechanism has some some something to grind through itself. But when there's nothing there, it notices its, <laughs> its own emptiness. And this is the hell of boredom. And Schopenhauer, uh, you know, has, is very influential not least because of his extraordinary descriptive powers but one thing he never really was was a social thinker i mean it's, it's, it's so it's, it's so extraordinary that he, he gave little thought to why it was that people might get bored he just took it to be a feature of human beings wherever they might be under any circumstances under any social or historical conditions and and it's it's it seems to me and uh, I think I find the same argument in, in the philosopher Adorno, that we have to look at the ways in which we're trained. We are really trained as task, as task beings, you know, um, and task beings uh, are not just people who can switch on it uh, when a task needs to be done and switch off. But the, the kind of conditioning is, is, is pervasive and Boredom is a consequence of not having anything to do when one has been shaped as a task performer. And so people will undertake the smallest, you know, the silliest tasks in order to keep themselves uh, occupied when they don't have anything too important to do, you know, from tidying up to whatever, to, to scribbling down or something, but uh, nonsense, anything to keep themselves going. But what 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 Schopenhauer never considered was 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 whether there might not be some historical circumstances behind this this boredom, right? And that perspective also elides the very tedious, often boring nature of work. So mm. even when we set ourselves to doing tasks, we can find ourselves bored within the process of doing those very tedious tasks if they don't sort of uplift us in, in any kind of engaging way. Mm. Um, you know, the literature on flow uh, demonstrates this sort of kind of engagement that is required not only at work, but in, in activities outside of work that that really draw us in and engage us in certain activities. Mm. Um, 
but the vast majority of of work that people experience even self-reported people people see it as tedious and boring um and so even then we can set ourselves to tasks at work and still find ourselves in a kind of uh, impossible impossible boredom yeah and i think some of that literature on flow is quite insidious as well because mm. it it has a, as a kind of it has as a paradigm of of good work flow uh, which we really should see as a, as extremely exceptional uh, and highly dependent on on a, on 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 rare talent for example uh, or rare moments of of satisfaction uh, artists uh, may have moments of flow but they might also find it quite tedious and difficult and motivation may elude them uh, but they're perhaps a paradigm or, or people who are engaged uh, at ex extremely high level in sports where they don't really need to think of what they're doing can they can drift from one move to another in a way that's that is in the zone and in the flow but this this kind of experience is hardly to be replicated in in uh, many other spheres of work and yet it's sort of a paradigm as though you know we have to work towards that because that's the kind of work that feels uh free somehow i i mm -hmm. i think i think it's i think it is potentially quite insidious because it it continues to as it were to set a, a, an ideal horizon for for work by presenting us with a paradigm that's extremely narrow or marginal i should say in the experience of work mm, so in the same way that the career as calling ends up being this kind of dictate from on high that we were supposed to expect that we can achieve that's yeah. actually a kind of exceptional quality that um the sort of managerial perspective <laughs> assumes that that is something that you can you can force upon people or get them to draw out of themselves but actually we should recognize these kinds of things the calling the concept of flow as something that is that's exceptional exceptional and something that we can't simply expect to happen yeah yeah that's yeah. i think so I, I mentioned uh when you when you raised that point before i mentioned weber and his analysis of the protestant work ethic i think one thing i'm a bit more familiar with is actually the the, the catholic view of of work and whilst it, i don't think it is has was regularly referred to as a calling it had there was another way of defending it which was to think of it as a dignity mm -hmm. and that you could have actually highly stratified workplaces and as long as you were doing your work diligently conscientiously it had a dignity which you should be proud of and it in a sense discouraged any kind of comparison between say the role of the farm laborer and the and the role of the the landowner because they each had their dignity and of course that's another uh, uh another insidious way of defending defending work which i think is quite specific to the the catholic tradition as it were to bathe everything in the language of of dignity and to say that you are doing something really yeah, moral stroke religiously uh, 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 worthy if you undertake your task with conscientiousness uh, and yeah so I think that's 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 another way in which this um, the sense of the absolute necessity of work gets a sort of a moral validation mm -hmm. so a few minutes ago you mentioned sport mm -hmm. um and this, I think, leads us into your second to last chapter in your book on play. Mm. Um, and play has become sort of one of my one of my central interests for a little while now, in particular because the idea of play, although it isn't necessarily the opposite of work, gives us a different way of orienting ourselves to the world. Um, it seems to follow similar values of those associated with idleness. Um, um, but you, of course, point out some of the differences. Um, but I think particularly some of the similars are, are are that play is often described as a kind of purposeless activity that's done for the sake of itself right so it's something that's done for intrinsic rather than instrumental purposes but 
play is also a creative activity, right? Both in the sense that it transforms the world, such as in you know the play of artistic creation. There's something that you actually create, um, and also transforming ourselves, right? So there's a, a kind of self-creation. Um, and in fact, most psychological and sociological analyses of play, um, they view it as a kind of self-formation and necessary for socialization, right? This is why play studies in children are so are so important. Um, so I, there is a, there is this kind of intimate relation between play and idleness, but it seems like play has enough of a kind of active creative component that might distinguish it from idleness or perhaps not. What are, what are the differences and, and similarities there? Yeah. In, in the, in the book itself, I, I looked at some of the claims made by Schiller, who's the original play theorist, I suppose. And Marcuse, who adopts him, you know, 150 years later or, or whatever, and gives it a twist with a bit of Freud and a bit of Marx thrown in. But I, I won't, I won't go into to that because in many ways that chapter was a bit more of a kind of a critical, nitpicking chapter where I wasn't convinced by the articulation. I was actually I respected the intent, more, but not the execution. Whereas with the other philosophers, I, I just didn't like the intent um but i think what you mentioned there in in your question touches on something very significant play studies and children because why are children taught how to play and in in schools they're taught how to play and perhaps because physical activity has advantages but it's it's deeper than that really it's part of the process of learning cooperation uh, of, of 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 expressing yourself albeit within rules you know no you, you can you're not supposed you're not supposed to throw the ball that way or you're not supposed to pass the ball in that direction or whatever it might be um so there's something about play as the introduction to a structured life um I don't want to say that it's complete it's you know it's 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 a it's idea, an ideological uh, trap that turns people into kind of, you know, avaricious workers and so forth. But there is there there is that side to play that it it wouldn't really be a mainstay of school curricula across. I I, I only I only know about the West. Um, I, it's not, I'm not Western centric. I just I don't happen to know too much about anywhere else. But it's been an intrinsic part of school curricula since the 19th century. And it's not because people will be, it's lovely to see children enjoying themselves, but there's a, there are advantages mm -hmm. to teaching in this really interesting, in this sort of appealing way, the, the cooperation, teamwork. I know not all sports are teamwork, but all sport, of course, all sports have some kind of structure and rules and and certainly competition. Uh, and the value of the winner and and so on and so forth i i know that not all plays like that particularly when people play with friends and whatnot and who wins and who loses and uh who makes a fool of themselves and who doesn't all of those things are not very important but i think in the formative years these these uh, at least perhaps in a slightly less gentle age than our own those things were foregrounded hmm. you know and one of the things that i think is particularly interesting about children's play is it has all of these uh it has all of these self-learning components and cooperative components so there's a form of um socialization that's happening but at the same time what you do as uh, when you play as a child is you're also sort of testing out the waters in a way that's safe that prevents you from having to suffer real consequences that you would otherwise right mm -hmm. But what I think is fascinating about play, and maybe this has a real relation with idleness, is children don't do it for those reasons. Adults may create curriculum for those reasons because they recognize the significance and value of play. Mm -hmm. But children don't play for those reasons. They play for the kind of intrinsic value of the experience that they're having. And so I do see a lot of relation there between... Um, between idleness and play to a certain extent, because they're, 
what matters is not a kind of future orientation of a kind of purposiveness, a goal orientedness, even though goals might be a part of the play process, they are not, they are always amenable, right? Mm -hmm. It's always, uh, always possible to be shifted. Um, and the philosopher Moritz Schlick has a, a great piece called On the Meaning of Life, where he talks about uh, play as being the meaning of life. And he adopts, you know, he, uh, Schiller and so on and so forth. But um, so that connection there, I think, is quite fascinating. The reasons why others want us to play and the reasons why we play ourselves are different. Mm. Um, that's, that's very interesting. If I had a completely jaundiced view of play, which I, I don't, you could say that's that's the that's the wicked genius of it, isn't it? Is that it it exploits something that children like to do in order to shape them in a, in, in a, a direction they they don't appreciate or they don't realize they're being shaped to towards but i i i think that would be a, 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 a an un, un, unduly suspicious or reductive of view yeah um it's true i i mean i i don't know if this helps anything i've said or if indeed might even contradict it but i also have witnessed more than once and i, I shouldn't certainly name names children hating to lose when they're playing even very young children being terribly upset if they if they lose in some in some game uh, and it's interesting to think about about that uh, i i wouldn't like to think that there's an innate competitiveness in people but perhaps if they're thrown into a situation of play which comes heavily uh colored by notions of reward and you know praise and blame and so on to the to the winner and the loser respectively uh, and and obviously children are very needy for love and approval and there's something interesting happening there as well this mm. feeling terribly upset at, at losing mm -hmm. so i want to be mindful of your time here but i want to I, I sort of want to round off this by thinking about what your conception of idleness really is and what what the value of idleness is for us um and and what a world that is more idle might actually look like yeah there's, there's a lot of different angles uh come out of a quest that question uh, conceptually i i would say that for me idleness has a kind of negative valence is something i think i find useful as a way of testing out those philosophers and moralists and religious thinkers who believe that our truest humanity is found in the process of work and our self-realization has to be taken seriously as a consequence i i think of of idleness as a state where we would say, I, I actually don't have any interest in myself uh, as a visible phenomenon, as a socially attractive phenomenon. And I therefore uh, don't care to spend my time uh, laboring away on uh, careers and goals that are as much defined by the, the, the games of life uh, I happen to be projected into by my society. Um, so uh, uh, the idler in that sense would be somebody who simply uh, didn't, who didn't care. But I, you know, I, I think I respect that Hegelian insight is that it's difficult for us to genuinely jump outside of what we have become. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a sort of a, a powerful critical perspective to be gained by by thinking of it because no, nobody has you know no philosopher really has ever wanted to deny that we get we we can feel the appeal of idleness that it's uh, that but they might just dismiss it as momentary and you know on deeper analysis something uh, that, that 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 doesn't deserve any further consideration but it, it is an intuition many have and the question is what what does that intuition tell us about ourselves is it a moment of critical insight into um, the excessive energy and concern and, and self we put into everything. 
what 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 do we do too much of now i suppose uh, my opinion isn't any any is probably less informed than most people's but it seems to me we just do too much of everything don't we 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 act too much we buy too much we make too much we eat too much um I wouldn't want to say we talk too much, but <laughs> there, there's... We'll have to end the podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The yeah, exactly. Yeah. Obviously, what, what we have to say, you know, can't be said enough. But uh, <laughs> as, as for the world beyond us, um, obviously, there's there's nothing but talk. And it's 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 so uh, it's so awful. You know, the, the endless opinions about things that are just designed to catch attention and to 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 gain some kind of standing that isn't really the product of of a desire for a genuine human connection or or to express a view that's been properly thought of we just seem to do so so much uh, uh that we that we, we surely can't it can't be sustainable in any in any of the the senses that sustainability is used in these days yeah, Byung Chul Han in his book Burnout talks about this in terms of excesses of positivity. Yeah. So we always have to be saying yes to something. There's yeah. always more to be done. There's always more to be said. There's always more to 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 like and do and eat. And so we're caught in this excess of of continual positivity. Um, it's a it's almost a to, to sort of appropriate some Nietzschean language. It's almost like an over yes saying or something like that. Um, or maybe a real yes saying to life is also includes a kind of willingness to say yes to the more idle parts of our our nature, the ability to, to say yes to uh, presence and um, sort of uh, the, the kind of the idle passing and contemplation of time more so than a constant doing a constant action yeah i mean at the very least and this is certainly not a, a radical statement at all it's surely there has to be something about affirming what it is that feels uh, most in in line with one's own needs but this the uh, the the burnout thing you talk about is is obviously an affirmation of of the needs defined by others but because it comes with so many of the rewards we seem to be hooked on again visibility as you know social esteem it does seem very difficult to decline to say to say no yeah well i just want to thank you so much for your time today um and for all of our listeners i would encourage you to please read uh, Dr. O'Connor's book, Idleness, a philosophical essay through Princeton University Press. I've learned a lot here with you today, and I, I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Alec. And your, your questions really pushed me to think a bit more about some of the issues that I, I hadn't noticed before. So thank you. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Ethics in Action. For more on this podcast and on the Applied Ethics Center, check us out at umb.edu backslash ethics.